Steve Thackeray, welcome to the podcast. Hi, um, nice, uh, nice to hear from you. Thanks for having me on. Great. Uh, I want to preface this by saying that you are a doctor, so PhD, but you're a, you're an ecologist, and so therefore um, most ecologists don't use um, the prefix doctor, do they? I guess it depends what kind of um, what kind of area and what kind of um, business or, or company that we work for. Um, in research institutes like the one I work for, or in universities, it's quite common for people to uh, use their title. But maybe in in other areas, perhaps in consultancies and things like that, it's maybe not quite so common. Um, so it's probably a little bit context dependent. Yeah, I figured, I figured I'd ask because I did interview an ecologist out in California who, who uh, did not want to be called uh, oh, really? doctors. So, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So I, I, yeah. yeah, I was curious to see if that was uh, across the field or just uh, very specific environments. Yeah, it seems to be quite a variable thing. I think everybody, um, not in day-to-day -day conversation, but certainly in sort of official things, people tend to use their titles um, sort of around where I work anyway. So, Yeah. Okay, and let's talk a little bit about that. Let's see, um, what what exactly is it that you do for a living? Okay, so as you say, I'm a, I'm an ecologist, but my particular specialism is freshwater ecology. So I'm particularly interested in the wildlife that lives in lake environments, in particular lakes and reservoirs. Um, I'm interested in how communities of plankton in particular, but other groups of organisms like fish and um, and other other organisms besides how their communities change, uh, what affects the diversity of those communities and how they might respond to environmental change. So I guess a lot of the wildlife that I'm interested in um, sort of professionally and personally is beneath the water surface, maybe hidden away from a lot of um, a lot of people who don't have um, specialist kit to help sort of unlock that world for them. So you have what I would um, perceive as a very cool job. Oh, I mean, you really do get you really do get to look, like you said, at the world that most people don't have access to or don't get to see on a day to day basis. I mean, do you feel like it's a it's a job that's cool to you is this something you're very passionate about yeah absolutely and i think that is the thing that made me want to go into this area actually i i've been interested in wildlife and in ecology for quite a long time since i was a child really um but i think when i got to university and i started studying ecology as a degree subject i had some subject i had some modules that in there about freshwater ecology and that's what really brought it home to me that there were all these different creatures and all these different things happening below the water surface in places that aren't really desperately obvious every day and I just thought that was such um, an intriguing idea such a powerful idea I love the thought that you if you had the right kit you could actually go and you could see these things and you could sort of open up this new world and that's never really left me I, I don't think I just think I, I guess it's quite thrilling to be looking at some of these creatures you feel a sort of element of um, I don't know feeling privileged to be able to see these things I think yeah, it's fun because I bought myself a microscope, as you know, yeah. um, last year out of a pretty much, you know, just out of the blue. And I fell in love with this this amazing new world that I discovered. It was so beautiful. It was so diverse. The diversity alone in a few drops of water is quite profound. And um, I, I mean, I started, you know, talking about it, taking videos and stuff like that. Uh you know, I bought myself um, a couple of microscopes on Amazon. Now you say, uh, you know, that you need the right kit. 
what to use the right kit to observe uh, the the water life that you observe every day? Well, I think, you know, in terms of microscopes and things, we've probably got quite similar things. I mean, I use binocular microscopes for some of the larger organisms that I look at. Uh, we have some more powerful inverted microscopes as well for smaller organisms. But looking at the quality of what you produce, I think we probably have quite similar levels of kit. But it's that's part of it, the sort of this stuff that you use in the lab to be able to see these things and then the other part is having the equipment to collect your samples as well um so being having different water sampling devices or or plankton nets and that kind of thing so that you can actually collect uh, samples from the field in different places so you've got something to bring back and look at under the microscope um so you know there are lots of different elements i suppose that come together to let you go out and actually see what's there in lots of different habitats um and yeah having access to that really just as you say it opens up a, a sort of new world doesn't it yeah it's a bit like i don't know if you've ever done um virtual reality yeah. have, you, have you have you tried that before uh, only a little bit only a little bit um yeah but i can imagine that's right yeah yeah yeah, that's exactly what it felt like. It felt like being in a VR environment, and but except that in this case, it was real. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I like the idea um, of a VR plankton. I think that's a superb idea. That would be, oh, would wouldn't be... that be good? <laughs> yeah, we need to get some game developers on, on, on a call here. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so how do you collect your samples? Because I, when I go out, I just use a little pipette and I just grab a little bit from the shoreline and mm -hmm. things like that. Now, your techniques are obviously much more complex. Um, so how do you gather your samples? What uh, Can you explain that to us? Okay, well, I mean, there are so many different ways of collecting plankton samples and they, they're all, they've are all they all got their sort of pros and cons. A lot of what we gather, we gather with plankton nets. Um, so, you know, that's pretty much as basic as it sounds, a net that you would tow either horizontally behind a boat or you might lower it with a weight on it to the bottom of a lake and then pull it back towards the surface. Uh, but the mouth of the, that net is quite wide, you know, compared to the opening of a pipette. So you'll be collecting a lot and processing a lot more water. And what that means is you'll collect more organisms on the one hand but also you've got more chance of catching relatively rare things as well if you have a if you have a bigger net so you can get these quite big samples and if you collect lots of samples in different places you get a more representative um, set of samples as well telling you more about what's actually there in that community because you miss fewer things um, so we tend to do quite a lot of net sampling work that works quite well for bigger plankton things like uh, water fleas you know cladocerans and copepods and things like that uh, for algae and for protozoans and arguably for rotifers and things as well often it's better to collect a water sample rather than not use a net but actually bring the water back to the lab and settle out the organisms in the water because even the finest nets with the very narrowest mesh uh, size with the smallest holes in them will still let some of those creatures through so you'll still miss things. Whereas if you collect the water and sediment it in the lab, you end up with a really nice concentrated uh, little soup, I guess, of these very tiny creatures, which you can then pipette up and, and look at. So there's an element of um, modifying your sampling methods, depending on really what you want to pick out. Um, yeah. And th so these are very traditional methods, I guess, you know, for collecting things. Right. And so you mentioned a plankton net. Let's actually break that down a little bit. What exactly is a uh, plankton? 
Okay, yeah, sure. So the plankton are the organisms that really live suspended in the open water, in lakes and reservoirs, in the ocean too, actually, and uh, in slow-moving rivers. Um, so it's an incredibly diverse community. Some of these organisms are, are tiny plants, types of algae. Some of them are, are actually technically animals because they're uh, very minute crustaceans say um, but there are other organisms in there that are protozoans as well so it's and, and actually the bacteria and that are there as well are, are sort of bacterioplankton so you, you can imagine that this whole community is incredibly diverse there are multiple kingdoms of life represented in in there as well so you have these organisms that are suspended out in the open water that we call plankton but it gets a little bit sort of blurry around the edges in the sense that there are some species that are really quite closely associated with say um, submerged plants in the edge of a water body or quite closely associated with the sediment at the bottom and they spend more of their time in those structured habitats but sometimes stray into the open water so they're sort of in a way kind of semi-planktonic so you get this kind of gradient in in lifestyles within these organisms as well but really what we're talking about is lots of tiny creatures that live out in the out in the water yeah yeah you mentioned bacterial plankton i've never heard that term before i didn't even know that there was such a thing uh what it, what is it well so just as you have bacteria in other kinds of uh, places i mean uh, you have them out in the open water as well um some of the bacteria, I guess, would be sort of um, free, independent particles themselves in the plankton. But quite often, they're actually colonizing little bits of organic material that are suspended in the water as well. So you can get little aggregates of, uh, say, a leaf litter or sort of decaying body parts of organisms or something like that. And bacteria will colonize those little bits of organic matter. So you can actually have really quite a thriving bacterial community too, um, alongside some of these, uh, some of these other organisms that, uh, that we've both been looking at, you know, down the microscope. Can you give me an example of a, a few names that maybe I could ring a bell and maybe Google later? Oh gosh, I'm not. Um, I'm not an expert on bacteria, so I'd probably have oh, okay. to do the same as you. Actually, <laughs> I was curious. <laughs> <laughs> I had to ask, you know. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, why do you look at plankton? Well, the, the plankton are actually really important for the functioning of, of these ecosystems. So they're, they're, they're tiny, of course, very small, but it doesn't mean they're not uh, very influential. They're super abundant. And on the one hand, the, these plankton can affect the quality of the water. So if you think about algae, if you get very dense growths of algae, the water becomes less clear, maybe a little murky if you have growths of blue-green algae or, or cyanobacteria, you can get algal blooms and scums of algae floating on the surface of the water body. All of this can have an effect on the wider habitat, for instance, oxygen concentrations that are important for other organisms, but it can also affect the extent to which you want to use that water body yourself, you know, because some of these, you might not want to go swimming or let your pets in the water if there are these big scums of, of algae uh, along, uh, along the edge of the water especially given that some of those organisms can produce toxins that could make you um, could make you sick. So the algae affect the water quality, uh, but at the same time, they're providing energy for other organisms in that, in that ecosystem as well. So as they grow, they're providing a food source for other things. So they're supporting the food web. 
At the same time, the plankton are also um, providing food for much organisms much higher up in the food web, like fish, for instance. So, uh, which would be of interest to anybody who is a you know angler or has an interest in sort of fish and fish ecology. A great many fish species eat larger animal plankton, if you like, and certainly when they're in the larval stages. So these plankton organisms they're affecting the quality of the water they're supporting the food web at different levels as well um, and producing oxygen affecting how nutrients are cycled they're really kind of fundamental uh, players in in uh, these ecosystems you mentioned algal blooms yeah uh, what exactly causes that okay well that's a really good question um there are quite a few factors that come together I think to create these blooms I mean the, the algae will be growing in the water year round at some level of abundance but what happens in an algal bloom is that the conditions become uh, such that that the growth of those algae really starts to pick up really starts to accelerate so it's often a case of if there's a lot of uh, limiting nutrient in that water. So if there's a lot of phosphorus in the water, for instance, uh, then there is, there's lots of um, potential for algae to grow because they need that nutrient to grow alongside some others too. So if you have lots of nutrients available and the water's nice and warm, those two things can mean that the algae can grow very, very rapidly and, and create a bloom. Um, but there are you know, lots of other things going on in terms of sort of the weather conditions can influence how blooms form and maybe collapse and get moved around uh, on the surface of water bodies as well. So it can be quite a complex picture. Yeah, it's uh, something happened this spring, actually, on the Rideau Canal here in Ottawa, is that it, it became covered in this lime green sludge, let's just call it that. Okay. Uh, and, and it was uh, kind of like a filamentous kind of algae. Um, and I'd never seen it like that before. And it turned out that it was because I guess uh, they, they, the people who manage the Rideau Canal, I'm not sure who the government, I guess, mm -hmm. um, didn't, um, didn't have time to pass, I, I guess, like an, uh, like a, like an algae machine or something that kind of breaks it up. Is that something that helps? manage the the control of algal blooms do you know i think um i'm not so sure about that i think some of the maybe some of the better solutions for algal problems are really out of the water in the surrounding land and in the catchment you're controlling that input of nutrients from the surrounding land and maybe coming in from wastewater treatment works as well you're really cutting off the resources that the algae use if you can control that input of nutrients and it's probably one of the sort of single most important things you can do really to control those algal blooms um when it when they're actually growing in the water already you're trying to fix an issue that's already right there rather than sort of taking a step back and thinking about what might have caused it Okay. And so when you say nutrients, what exactly are you talking about? So there are certain chemical um, elements that are really essential for the growth of these organisms. Um, and when it comes to algal blooms, it's quite often the case that in freshwaters anyway, that phosphorus and nitrogen are uh, particularly important. So if you have large, high concentrations of those nutrients, you have the potential for quite large algal populations to grow and for blooms to develop. Um, now, whether they do depends on other things as well, like sort of the appropriate weather conditions and the water being warm uh, and there not being excessive grazing and things like that as well. But having that, those high concentrations of phosphorus and nitrogen can really allow algae to grow. Is it possible to grow algae at home? 
Well, yeah, I guess it, it is really. I mean, we grow them in the lab in sort of um, small scale experiments on the bench top. Um, actually, if if you bring some water out of your pond and play, place it on the windowsill in a jam jar, you'll probably find some algae growing in there fairly soon, uh, just to the light and the warmth of that. Um, yeah, so um, it's uh, you'll certainly be able to get some material to look at, I'm sure, that way. Cool. Yeah, it's only happened to me once, but only because I had a moss ball in that jar. Oh, so right. I got a bunch of algae. Yeah, I bet. Uh, um, so, you know, you observe quite a, quite a few things in the lake environment with plankton and all that. What are some uh, invasive species that you always keep an eye out for? Um, okay, so that freshwater systems there you know there are quite a lot of different invasive species that we're becoming aware of one of the uh, really interesting well i use interesting in inverted commas because i suppose it causes some concern um but there's a, a particular water flea uh spiny water flea uh with the tree fees uh, longimanus would be the latin name for it which has actually been introduced into some north american lakes and once there has had um, an impact on the on the plankton community there so that's considered to be not native to those systems and is an, an invasive species so we can have plankton invasive species as illustrated by that example but in the uh, in the uk there are there are other groups of organisms that we consider to be uh, invasives as well so zebra mussels for instance are, are raising quite a lot of concern in some water bodies in the uk um as are um, particular species of freshwater shrimp which have started sort of spreading among water bodies fairly recently. And in actually one of the study systems that we work on in the in the Lake District in Windermere, uh, just last year we found a fish species uh, in our gillnet samples that hadn't been caught there before. Uh, and that's called the rough. It's a sort of relative of the perch more or less, quite closely related and um, not native to that ecosystem. So somehow or other it's, it's, they've arrived there and rough are quite uh, potentially quite impactful species. They can reproduce quite early in their lives and actually more than once a year. They can actually put, have quite high population growth rates and they can also feed on the eggs of other fish species. So you can imagine that there can be a cause for concern if they you know, really establish in a, in a new environment. So the invasives that we see in freshwaters are really from quite a diverse um group of organisms, lots of different types of species. Yeah, zebra mussels are a huge problem in Ontario here. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, there, it's something, I think it's affecting mostly the Great Lakes, if, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. But it is a, a massive issue. And I think that zebra mussels come in on ships, don't they? I think that's, yeah, that's right. I think to, that essentially humans can help um, help many of these organisms move around move around the globe, sort of short-circuiting, if you like, the barriers that might prevent them from dispersing all on their own. Um, so yes, certainly shipping uh, traffic can move organisms and move organisms around. And in, in the UK, certainly there's been really quite a push to strongly encourage people who at a smaller scale within the country who are moving their boats and their kit around to just be very careful and very vigilant in, and make sure they clean their kit and, and check everything through that so there's nothing, no organism stuck to it that 
nothing obviously there that they could move from one place to another. Um, I believe that one of the uh, really one of the main things you can do about invasive species is essentially try to try not to let them get there in the first place, because once they establish, it's very hard to do anything about it. Yeah, that's what I was actually wondering was that you described this uh, perch-like uh, fish called a ruff. And I was wondering, what is the process once you find this fish? What, what happens next? Well, it's very early days. You know, we've caught just a couple of specimens of, of it. And now really, um, once now it's in that system, I, there's not really much we can do to sort of remove all the, the rough such as they are, however many there are, from, from that system. We just have to now see... Um, how their populations develop. And, and I think that it's not a foregone conclusion, by the way, that once a new species arrives somewhere, it's definitely going to establish, um, reach huge numbers, have an enormous impact. That can happen sometimes, of course, but sometimes ecosystems have a, a degree of resistance around them and can resist a new species arriving and establishing. So, and the, and the way that might happen is that the species that are resident, if you like, the ones that are already there might really strongly compete with the new species that arrives, or they might be predators of it, or there might be parasites there that then attack the new species that arrives. So there are these kinds of, um, these areas in which this new ecosystem could potentially resist this inward movement of new species. And it's, so it's a hugely complex picture and, um, uh, I guess we just have to see how things develop from here on in, whether that population will establish or whether there'll be mechanisms there that stop them really achieving great numbers. Oh, that's really fascinating. Yeah, I hadn't thought about the kind of wait and see approach that is necessary to really monitor. Essentially, you're monitoring now is what's happening, right? That's right. Yeah, I mean, there's, the, monitoring these systems is incredibly important because that's how we build our understanding of how they function. Um, so actually in freshwater ecology one of the interesting features of long-term monitoring schemes is that they have this tradition of really monitoring lots of different aspects of the environment all in the same place at the same time so we tend to go out and look at physical things like water temperature and light penetration also chemical things like nutrients and oxygen and lots of different biological measures too so we try to get this i i guess this kind of whole ecosystem picture of how things are changing and when you gather data that, like that and you interpret those data and you do some sort of statistical analysis and some modeling, you've got a chance then to learn how the system works, to try and understand what the mechanisms are that govern how that system works. And you can use that understanding then to sort of suggest maybe future approaches to, to management of water bodies. So those, those long-term data sets are, are really ever so important in terms of teaching us how the systems work. Uh, you said light penetration. That's something I'd never even thought about. So if you were monitoring a lake that at the time had very short trees and then the trees grew over time, let's say over a 30-year period, and now there's less light uh, coming into the, the lake, would you uh, would that cause a problem? So if if you have less light penetration, yeah, I mean, it all sort, there are all sorts of ecological responses to that. So I guess with the tree example, it would probably have to be quite a small water body for the trees to cast shade across the surface of it, if you see what I mean. Um, but there are other things that cause uh, reductions in light penetration. So for instance, if you have a lot of coloured organic material washing in from the soils in the surrounding land, that can give a sort of brown staining to the water. Um, which then prevents light penetrating uh, very deeply. Now, 
if you have less light penetration, actually that makes the environment a little bit um, more difficult to live in for organisms like algae that photosynthesize. So you're reducing the amount of light available for those organisms. And it could be that light fa fails to reach the, um, the sediment of a water body where it used to reach there before. So any, any plants growing there may then have a hard time actually photosynthesizing. So changes in underwater light can affect that balance between, you know, where is the primary production? Where is the photosynthesis happening? Is it happening in the water? Is it happening on the bed of the lake? Is it both? It can really affect that balance by just affecting how far in the light goes. Um, and I guess behind the scenes of these big bulk changes in how much algae you've got or how many plants grow, you'll get different species um, in diff those different kinds of contexts. So some species are really quite well adapted to low light conditions. They have features that allow them to be efficient at absorbing, absorbing light in those situations, whereas other species really don't. So you're actually really encouraging a sort of turnover in the community, a change in which species are there and dominating. Hmm. Now I'm curious, do you guys monitor things like disease? Like, is there such a thing as a, a disease that could come over and, and kill a lot of the plankton in a lake? There are, there are diseases out there. So it's not something I've personally looked at, but there are indeed people that do uh, look at uh, parasites and diseases of planktonic organisms. So there are, there are bacteria um, that uh, will colonize uh, zooplankton, things like uh, Daphnia species, for instance. Um, there are fungal parasites that would infect certain algae, certain diatoms. So there are, def there are certainly diseases in those systems which could potentially have an impact on the populations of plankton, either by killing individuals or by affecting how they grow and how they reproduce. So there's that whole, yeah, those kind of... Um, host parasite, host disease dynamics are all happening in these systems as well. Steve, what's your favorite creature? Oh, well, now I'm, I'm so obviously I'm a, a little tiny bit obsessed with planktonic organisms, as you might have picked up. Um, so I think I'm probably not going to be awfully popular, but I think Bithotrephes, which is sadly this invasive species in North America, is in its home range where I am. <laughs> it's one of my favorites. <laughs> Um, it's a really striking looking creature. Um, it, so it's a lot of, um, a lot of zooplankton, animal plankton organisms, the sort of crustacean things are maybe a millimeter or two in size, but these are rather longer because they have a really long tail spine which is really sort of very, very striking and grasping limbs. They're predatory organisms. So uh, they, have, they have these grasping limbs for capturing their prey and these enormous bug compound eyes. So they're, you can imagine they're quite alien looking things. Um, and I, I just find them really, very striking. But um, yeah, I know there'll be a lot of people who aren't as keen on them as I am. <laughs> Sorry, Steve, can you say their name again for me? Uh, Bithotrephes. Bithos, sorry. Say it again. So it's bithotrephes. I don't even know if I could even say that again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> do they have a common name? Um, but they're called the spiny water flea, I believe. Spiny water flea. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You'll be able to find them if you, yeah, if you search for that. All right, and that's uh, it's funny because, you know, I, you know, like I said earlier, is that I've been observing pond life for a while, and I'm, I am learning that a lot of creatures like copepods have common names like. Cyclops, for example, which make learning about creatures a lot easier. Uh, so that's something that, you know, for people who are 
are perhaps new to observing pond life is that you can always look for more common terms. Like if you hear, you know, spiny water flea, then you can learn the the more scientific name, which is uh, which is fun. Yeah. Do you uh, did you did you have um, did you always have an interest in learning about pond creatures? Like, were you reading about pond life when you were little? Um, I I think it came along a little bit later than that, probably because I I started out. Yes, my sort of love of wildlife started with bird watching first um, when I was oof, about eleven, something like that. So that's and then when I was when we were out looking at birds with me and my dad, because I'd like to think I got my dad into it rather than the other way around. Um, you, I started to notice other things, start to look at the plants and the insects and things as well as as we were around, and it just encourages a more general love of nature. And I think certainly going out and doing that you become aware of some of the more obvious freshwater things like you know fish and amphibians and water birds and things like that and and dragonflies and those sorts of things but i think the kind of world of plankton for me came along rather much much later you know when i got to university and started taking courses that were really just about those communities and i, I think that's probably why i found it quite mind-blowing because it, it wasn't an area that i'd really thought about a great deal before um so yeah that so that must have had quite an impact on me i guess yeah, it's uh, it's fascinating how the average person doesn't know, you know, what a diatom is or what a what a copepod is or even a, a water mm. flea. Uh, it is really a hidden world. What do you think uh, that people could do, scientists especially, to to perhaps um, educate the public about, uh, you know, lake ecology and plankton and and all these things it's a really interesting question actually i mean i, th I think there's a lot of potential there because these things are so hidden away um so some of the things i've done in the past is i've been into schools and i've taken plankton microscopes with me you know i've showed school children some of these organisms and that always goes down really well actually the the children love to see them and, and they usually want to know if one species had a fight with the other one which one would win that's the usual question um to which i usually come up with some kind of answer but there's um there's always so much enthusiasm actually seeing those organisms and i think seeing things firsthand has to has to really really help it makes it rather less abstract um I think because I, often the organisms that have captured the imagination are really quite big charismatic things, aren't they? You know, some of the rare, some of the conservation relevant species, the sort of flagship species we see, tend to be quite big charismatic things, and that there are these super charismatic microfauna, if you like, there as well. And I think we just got to sort of maybe build some familiarity with what they are and and how they look. So. I certainly post a lot of videos and of creatures on on social media and you know people see them there and when I've shown people sort of locally some of these videos of some of these creatures you know they've been really interested to see them it felt maybe with shades of horror as well because you know they're quite <laughs> strange looking things um so I think it's I think it's sort of going out there and showing people what these things look like and and talking to them about the importance of these organisms as well so we would have to go beyond look at this it's it's a curiosity it's aren't these things just interesting because they are of course but to sort of go from that to and by the way these things um, have an effect on the quality of your water or these organisms actually feed the fish that you might like to go angling for you know um trying to bring it into people's everyday lives must surely be part of the issue i guess 
Yeah, it's um I've always said that tardigrades are or or water bears are the yeah. gateway to the microscopic life. Uh, they are they do have the, those charismatic features that you were discussing earlier that perhaps, mm. you know, people are used to seeing baby lions and and blue jays and stuff. I think tardigrades are probably one of the key creatures that uh, scientists can use to really kind of introduce people to that world. Uh, one of the questions that came up once when I was showing, uh, you know, I think it was on a Twitch stream or something, mm -hmm. I was showing people tardigrades and someone asked me, what is the purpose of a tardigrade? And I did not have an answer to that. Would you have an answer to that? Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that they sort of have um, a purpose in that sense. You know, I think tardigrades, like everything else have evolved to uh, to exist in for a certain set of circumstances you know in response to a certain opportunity there these organisms have adapted and, and evolved to be able to to survive and uh, their ultimate purpose is to reproduce and and keep going isn't it mm -hmm. so these these organisms have filled the available niches the available spaces if you like for them in the in the natural world and i guess their purpose that is their purpose to do that and to continue to to reproduce um i guess in the um in the grander scheme of things all these organisms ultimately make a contribution to the way that whole ecosystems work and function and those ecosystems then deliver things to us as well um in you know in terms of things like clean water or fish or anything or anything like that so there are these links between the diversity of life, of wildlife, the way ecosystems work and the kind of benefits that those d ecosystems deliver to people. Um, and those linkages can be, you know, really quite complex, but they are nevertheless there. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Tardigrades have really made it in that sense. I, I'm certainly aware that there are a lot of people that would know what a, a water bear is, even if they really weren't familiar with any of the other things that we talked about you know, during this conversation. Yeah, it certainly helped that it's been on, you know, Star Trek and all these kind of pop culture, <laughs> you yeah, know, right. references. Um, we need a, a Star Trek episode about, you know, Copa Pods now, maybe. You oh, know? yes, please. Yeah, that would be good. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so have you, still on the subject of tardigrades, because now I'm very, very curious, have you ever picked up any tardigrades in your in your lake samples? Well, not not in my lake ones, but I have picked them up in my pond at home. Actually, I know I think probably in the in the lake ones, we're just too far from from the edges. You know, our our samples are taken right out in over the deepest point of the lake, and the tardigrades are going to be um, closer to vegetation and edges and things like that. But in my in my little pond, or indeed actually on just clump in clumps of moss on tree trunks and things, um, I've certainly found them in those kinds of places. Um, so that's quite that's quite a good thing to do actually to just take a take a little bit of water and just um i guess use your pipette to suck water up and down on a clump of moss and you'll probably dislodge some tardigrades and some um deloid rotifers and things that way as well uh, so I've, I've sort of gone out and found them for fun if you like recreationally rather than professionally yeah yeah that's one thing that we Oh, I mean, you and I both nerd about nerd <laughs> out on. You know, it's it's this. Uh, we kind of sometimes kind of a you know exchange likes on posts of what we yeah. find in the in yeah, local environments. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right. Uh, one of the things I, I do want to bring up because a lot of your research uh, does really 
touch on the topic of climate change. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so how exactly does your research impact uh, or touch on the, the topic of climate change? I know that you do uh, officially research the, how stressors impact freshwater lakes. So yeah. what, what does that information tell us about how, how the earth is changing? Okay, well, some of the some of the research I've been involved in is really quite long term research. We talked earlier on about monitoring um, and the, the data from monitoring schemes. If they, you know, these data sets run for decades, certainly the ones that we've been involved in, they've run for long enough now that you can actually see long term trends in in the way that ecosystems are changing over and above the sort of year to year variations and day to day variations in how things change. And we know from our long term water temperature records from lakes in the English Lake District, the temperatures have been rising. Um, and we, we actually, when we last looked at the data, just to it, it to look at these kinds of questions, we, we discovered, I think, that I, around four or five of the warmest years in our data set had occurred since the year 2000 for, the, for those lakes. So you could really see that over time there was this shift towards warming. So we can see that signal in our, if you like, our, our sentinel sites. Now, that's not something that's just happening in the lakes that we study when you then go and read research from other parts of the world from other research groups as well you can see similar kinds of trends and there are now increasingly more and more quite large-scale studies where people have brought together data sets all across the world into the one uh, one piece of research to say okay well actually we can see on balance that warming is happening in fresh waters and yes there's variation in the rate of warming but on average, we can see the signal, we can see that it's happening. So we, we know that temperatures are changing. We've got ample evidence for that. But we can see other things happening in these systems as well, alongside uh, the changes in, in, in water temperature. And actually one of the areas I've been involved in is looking at the, the passage of the seasons, if you like. So the time of year at which a particular biological event happens. So in the dry land environment, it might be the time of year at which birds lay their eggs or plants flower. Um, underwater, it's the time of year when algae reach their peak uh, peak abundances or when water fleas peak or when fish spawn or you know those kinds of seasonal events and when we've looked at long-term records of those we've seen a shift in lots of cases towards earlier seasonal events and that is one of the uh, well-accepted fingerprints if you like uh, of a climate change impact on the natural environment um, and essentially because warming increases rates of biological processes it speeds up biological rates and on top of that temperature is used as a cue by lots of different species to time their seasonal activities as well so we're seeing warming but we're also seeing a response in organisms they're shifting the timing of their seasonal behaviors earlier and earlier and that's given us now that feel for oh okay so there's an impact as well so these long-term data sets are really now showing us that that's that that's happening and those kinds of changes we see them all across the world in different locations so we can we know it's just not it's not just something about uh, the peculiarities of, of a particular lake that we're looking at in a particular part of the world it's rather bigger than that so we know there's warming we know there are responses to warming do we know the causes of warming so um there's so bearing in mind i'm not a climate scientist per se but there is now um, overwhelming consensus among climate scientists that uh, that not just that warming is occurring but also that 
humans have made a contribution to that. There's an anthropogenic contribution to warming as well. So there's a great deal of confidence now in, in that link. And actually, the, the reports produced by the Intergovernmental Panel uh, on Climate Change, the IPCC, really make that statement. Uh, and there's usually a rather, you know, there are usually quite a lot of press releases, a lot of media activity around when those reports are released. So in that sort of environment, in that scientific community, there's now a great deal of consensus about, about that issue. Um, we all know, I mean, I think we all know at least one person who's a science denier or who's kind of starting to veer that way. Okay. It's becoming more and more popular, I find, at least in North America. Um, <laughs> how do you, how do you, uh, Steve, as, as the person, not the scientist, but also a scientist, how do you deal with listening to people here about or talk about, you know, climate change denial and, and things like that? Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because um, people will express their opinions, of course, always. Um, so I've, I guess I've had those kinds of conversations and my, I, I've just gone to, the, gone to the evidence, I guess, in those conversations. And I've been in that position, I guess, where I can say, well, look, you know, I, I work in a related area and I've read, I've read some of the evidence and, and these are the things that we're seeing. This is why people are saying that, you know, it's not... It's not a matter of belief. There's evidence there that, that these ch changes are happening. And I, I try to have that conversation that, you know, there is evidence. These things are, are actually happening um, and and really try to try to address it from that kind of perspective, really. Um, because you have to, I, I guess, if you, any frustration you might feel, you have to sort of try and put that to one side and have that kind of rational conversation about, OK, well, here's the evidence. This is why I'm saying that this is happening. Um, yeah. Makes sense. Uh, what do you do for fun on weekends? Oh, well, you know, so, sometimes fun's allowed, isn't it? Um, yeah. So I have a few things I, I like to do. I mean, we've talked about me going out and sort of seeing nature and things, and that's certainly part of it. But I uh, play the guitar a little bit. Um, and um, I also, I like drawing. I'm quite keen, keen on art, so I particularly like drawing uh, with pencils and with ink. Um, so sometimes wildlife things, sometimes just things that, I don't know, just pop into my head, I guess. But I, I find it very, um, very therapeutic, actually, uh, to be able to spend some time doing something like that. I think there's something about creative things that um, draws your mind to that moment. Um, it's almost a kind of mindfulness, I think, you know, to be able to, to focus in that way. So I, I really enjoy doing things like that. Yeah, you posted these beautiful uh, drawings of, of human eyes in various forms of, of expressions. Oh, I found that very, very charming and, and, and quite fun. Um, do you endeavor to create uh, paintings later on or is how do you want to pursue your, your, your drawings? Well, I, I, yeah, I would actually really like to do that because I um, I don't have a lot of experience of painting, actually. And I would, it would be really great to sort of push myself and actually learn some new skills there um, because I think I probably didn't do any painting in anger since I was at school probably so you know that was some time ago um, so yeah I would really like to try and um, practice with some different media yeah and some, and some different subjects as well so I, I the, with the the eyes and things that you mentioned there I was, I'd become aware that I was drawing quite a lot of wildlife based stuff which is great because I love it but I thought well I'm not sure I can draw humans <laughs> so um, I wanted to try and, and go and try that as well and just change the subject a little bit so it's all about I guess 
diversifying your your skills isn't it and sort of widening the comfort zone that you have um and i'm very very keen on trying to do that to do that some more i there's such beautiful work produced by certainly the people i see on on social media i'd find it absolutely awe-inspiring really sometimes and to try to look at that and think oh could i ever get anywhere close to something like that it's quite you know it's quite inspiring there's a wonderful book uh called the natural way to draw this is a book that's been around for oh probably 50 60 years and it really is a, a good um it's a good guidebook to learn how to draw and also it's i mean it's the one of the main books in art school so i highly recommend it for you oh I'm but it's uh yeah, yeah, the natural way to draw, I believe, is the title. And so you play, you also play the guitar, which I did not know about you, actually. Oh well, I'm I'm maybe a little quieter about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what what do you uh, what do you play? So I um I have a I have a couple of acoustics and an electric, but since uh, since the family came along, the electric tends to stay in its box a little bit, you know, just because of the sheer noise and disturbance value of it. Um, so I, I quite enjoy sort of strumming along my, on my acoustic to mo most things. I I guess I enjoy sort of alternative rock music and things like that. Um, and so I'll, I'll quite often sort of play along to something like that. But sometimes I'm I just sort of sit there noodling away on my own, just trying to make my make things up um yeah and that's and that's good fun you know yeah it's funny because one of the reasons why I don't make this podcast just about science or just about history or just about you know what somebody does on a film set is that I want to kind of break down some stereotypes of people and I think <laughs> the stereotype with scientists is that they're all nerdy people who have their noses in their books um and yet here we are I mean I'm learning that you're kind of secretly a little rock star a little bit <laughs> inside of you you know yeah yeah absolutely yeah at least in my head anyway uh but yeah that's right no it's a it is an amazing thing ultimately we're all you know we're all we're all human aren't we and everybody has these has these things that mean something to them you know so i you know i know people that are into sort of amateur dramatics or it might be knitting needlework or gardening or sculpting i'm so, photography so many different things i mean just thinking around the people that i work with and um i love that i mean i, I love i love the fact that the, the people these people have that about them that you know you, you see them in one capacity at work and you talk about certain things but to find out that they've got a passion they've got something else that they really really care about um is a it's a wonderful thing it's another way of that you sort of connect with someone isn't it um and uh yeah absolutely we're we're not um i suppose we haven't many of us have got an element of mad scientist about us but there's maybe a little bit more to it than that yeah and how did you decide because once people you know i know a lot of students and i know a lot of students in 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 grad school um how did you decide after you got your phd that you didn't want to become a professor you wanted to do you know field work and you wanted to do research how did you decide that um i suppose when you go through your phd you do exp you do actually experience quite a lot a phd is not one sort of homogenous thing you you have to practice a lot of different skills um in in going through a typical 
PhD project. So in a, like in an, certainly in an ecology PhD where you've got a mixture of, uh, say, field work on, and lab work and you're analysing data and then you find you've got to be a writer and a public speaker and you've got to do some design and you've got to manage, manage a project and, you know, you've got to do a lot of different things. Um, and I suppose if you, you know, if you haven't sort of been through that PhD experience, maybe that's not so obvious, but PhD researchers do so many different things. And that what that means, I guess, is that you get a feel for which of these things are enjoyable things, you know, and which things you would want to you would want to continue. Uh, and for me, going through the P, my, my own PhD just sort of being out in the field and gathering data and looking at the data from those field campaigns that was something that i really really enjoyed and i wanted to do i wanted to do more and uh, i guess everyone takes different experiences from that from that journey uh but but yeah absolutely it's it's amazing that in that it sounds like one role as a sort of phd researcher but it is so diverse um and and it is amazing what some people do with that with that opportunity it truly Hmm. Yeah, I, I don't. I'm really disconnected with. I mean, I have friends who do their or are doing their PhD, but I, I've never done it myself. I, you know, I, I dropped out of university, so it's a. Uh, there's a reason why I ask these questions. I'm very yeah. unfamiliar with the process, so I'm always curious the path that somebody takes after committing to that kind of schooling. You know. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, people come out at the other end of it and, and make different decisions. You know, some people will continue into a research sort of place, but others might go into somewhere, uh, some more of a, a, a something more applied, maybe some kind of environmental management. Some people might go into science communication and, and many other things besides. But um, yeah, everyone's journey is a little bit different. Um, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so now I'm curious, have you always lived in the UK? Yeah, I have actually. I have. Um, a lot of people going through that research process may may travel around quite a lot. Um, uh, for me, I've actually always been in the UK. Um, but then I, I sort of met my uh, wife at university and we we got married uh, during my PhD. And so, you know, we were we start we settled you know quite early on really so I, I've been sort of ba based here uh, since then really yeah yeah is your is your wife a, an academic or a scientist as well she she works in a university de department but more on the um, administrative side of things actually but she she essentially does a lot of management for the equivalent of a PhD program in another area so yeah it, it's a, a challenging role but she does it very well Okay, very cool. Yeah, I've been uh, surprised by how many guests I have who are either academics or scientists and who have uh, married someone who's all, almost all, you know, almost the same in the same field. Oh, okay. So I guess that yeah. makes a partnership a little bit better. I guess there's a mutual understanding in a way. Yeah, I guess that, you know, there are certain, I guess, idiosyncrasies, aren't there, about that kind of um, job and that uh, that lifestyle where, you know, the, the you would have the understanding, as you say, of, uh, of how that works. Yeah, absolutely. So it, we're almost out of time, but I was just curious. I mean, we are living during a pandemic. There's not a whole lot to do these days. What's something that you're really looking forward to doing once uh, things settle down? I'd just love to be able to sort of... Um, 
get back together with my my team actually um we we see each other in two dimensions on a, on a screen um most days and and it's great to keep in touch with people but i would just really like to see everyone in person again and um and just sort of be able to kind of work together but also just be able to sort of have that contact and and sort of be in touch and um have all those you know all those little chats and things that you would just have um you know every day and just in passing that now are a little bit more difficult to do so yeah it'd just be really nice to sort of reconnect with people I think that's I'm certainly looking forward to that. Does this mean that you go out and do field work on your own these days? I'm very desk based now but some of my oh, okay. colleagues are um they're out in the field we've actually we had to pause with field work early on in the pandemic uh, until we had really thought through all the kind of safety implications of what we were doing made sure we used to put in place new safety measures and now we're happy that we've done that um my colleagues are back out in the field measuring again um and I'm sort of at desk based at home so we're we're sort of actually able to uh, pick up some of our workload again and get going again. But we certainly did have a pause for some activities for a while. Okay. And so are there any plans for you to release some sort of blog or website for your artistic endeavors? Uh, that's a really good, uh, that is a really good question. Um, I've, I have thought about it and I don't know, maybe it's just a confidence thing because that's really no going back then, is there, if you go and put something <laughs> up like that. But yeah, I've certainly thought about it um, and it would be, I guess it would sort of push me a little bit to sort of do more and improve as well, which might be might be a, a really good thing. Um, so yeah, I might, I might have to give that some thought, yeah. Sure, I think it would it would be fun. I know you're not as comfortable with the guitar yet, but um, I think uh, you know seeing your your drawings on a Tumblr page or a website, I think that would be a lot of fun. Hey, and I'll have to do some learning on how to set one of those things up as well, won't I? Get, <laughs> get dragged into the current century. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, listen, Steve, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a pleasure reconnecting again. We've already done a, a Twitch interview a while back, a few months ago, I think. Yeah, and um, yeah. that was a different format. It was live. It was, it was visual. This is uh, this was uh, a bit longer and a bit more, um, you know, uh, we could really talk about more topics. So that was a lot of fun, yeah. actually. Yeah, I really, I really enjoyed it. That. Yeah, thank you for, you know, thank you for inviting me. It's been really nice to talk to you again. Yeah, same here. All right. So, um, is there? Do you want to share your your Twitter um, username so that people can follow you there? Hey, it's dead. It's really just easy. It's at Steve Thackeray. Um, so um, I can spell that out if that's helpful. Um, so at Steve, that's quite easy. Um, my surname is T H A C K E R A Y. Yeah, so give him a follow, guys, because uh, he posts some really cool things about ecology and about pond life. And I think I've seen a few of your drawings there. A few times so uh, well, if you want to get a little yeah get a little sneak peek at at uh, steve's uh, artistic side go follow him on on twitter so thanks again and uh, i hope that you have a, a fantastic week great stuff thank you very much and, and same to you as well thank you mm -hmm.